Revelation chapter 20, this morning, brothers and sisters, we will, with God's help, be considering uh, verses 7 through 10. Verses 7 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord, for this is God's very word. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand on the seashore, of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word and now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you be with us now as we consider the final uh, attempt of the enemy and the final defeat of the enemy. We pray, God, that you would give us grace to understand, to see, hear, and believe, and that you would fill us with confidence. We who have trusted in Christ, you would fill us with confidence, knowing that Christ is presently victorious and will be victorious in the very end. We thank you, God, that if we are in Christ, we also are victorious. We pray that you would give us, Lord, a grace to rejoice in the victory of Christ. Lord, I decrease now that you may increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day uh, Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. Last Lord's Day, we considered the, if you were here, I pray that you, if you were not here, I pray that you were able to go back and hear the sermon from last week, as it will help to at least connect you for today. Uh, last week, we considered the the symbolic 1,000-year binding of Satan. I say that again, symbolic 1,000-year binding of Satan. We learned that the 1,000 years spoken of here in the 20th chapter, is meant to represent the entire time or the entire period between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. Not a literal thousand years, but a symbolic thousand years that symbolizes the entire time between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. Which means that we are presently living in that 1,000 years or that millennium. We are presently living in it. That all saints... From the resurrection of Christ until Christ returns, we'll be living in that symbolic age known as the millennium. During this time, Satan is bound from blinding the eyes, deafening the ears, and hardening the hearts, listen to this now, of all nations in a comprehensive manner to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's bound from blinding in a comprehensive manner, and he's also bound from uniting all nations in a comprehensive manner. Blinding is opposing Christ. 
uniting is also for the purpose uh, Satan will unite them to oppose Christ and his church. Satan is bound from those two activities during this period of time. It does not mean that he does not deceive, because he does. He's just not able, as we said last week, to do so in a comprehensive manner, in a full, wide-scale manner. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, during this period, is drawing men, women, boys, and girls from all nations unto himself through the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. This gospel that our Lord declared would be preached to the four corners of the earth. And then Christ says, when this is accomplished, then the end will come. The four corners of the earth are, are um, being protected. Four corners of the earth is a Semitic way. I'm going to say this later. It's a Jewish way of saying the entire world. At this particular moment, the entire world is being protected in a certain way by God's holy angels. They are holding back evil that wants to flood into the earth. We'll get to this in our first point. That wants to flood into the earth in a comprehensive manner to both oppose the gospel and persecute the church of Christ. They are being held back from that now. John sees a time, though, when they will be released. I pray that we were encouraged last week then to be vigilant in our proclamation and witness of the gospel of Christ during this particular period. I pray that also we have confidence, confidence in Christ, confidence that if our faith is in Christ, then all fear of death is removed. That we who trust in Christ shall not fear death. Those who depart from this body before the return of Christ have this promise that they shall be comforted with Christ and they shall rule and reign with Christ for our Lord promised that those who remain faithful to him to the end a place on his throne shall be given to them those who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to the word of God reign with Christ not only in the future but if you trust in Christ, then you reign with Christ now. To those who refuse to take the mark of the beast, that is the symbolic way of saying those who refuse the ideas and beliefs and actions of Satan, live now and enjoy the blessing of reigning with Christ and will enjoy the blessing of the first resurrection. That means this. The promise of Christ is that though if one believes in him, they shall live and not die. Even if they die, they shall live. When your body or when your soul leaves your body before the return of Christ, should it leave before the return of Christ, you will experience and enjoy what is known as the first resurrection. For death has no power over you. Death has no power over you. I was blessed uh, to hear a testimony last week from one of our dear saints who was riding with another dear brother who was um, fearing the prospect of death. And he says to his little son who was in our church service last week, uh, dear one, what was the, the point of the sermon from last week? And the little boy said, all I know is this. If I trust in Christ, I don't need to fear death. 
This little boy from the mouth of babes comes uh, this great wisdom says to this older person, if you trust in Christ, you don't need to be afraid to die. If you got that from last week, you got the point. Trust in Christ and you don't need to fear death. We shall rule and reign with him. And if you trust in Christ and you are ruling and reigning with him now. During this entire time period when Satan is bound. Saints who are here and saints who are there are reigning and ruling with Christ. John sees that there will come a time though. When this symbolic age, not literal, but when this symbolic 1000 years will be complete. And Satan will be released one last time. Today, with God's help, we shall consider two points considering concerning the final release of Satan and the final defeat of Satan. Number one, the final release of Satan. This is verses seven and eight of chapter 20. The apostle John sees a time when Satan shall be loosed from his prison. Of course, we know that John is once again using symbolic language. Uh, in, in this point, there's going to be some technical things that I'm going to go through. Um, be patient with me, okay? And if you don't understand something later, then just let me know and we'll, we'll prayerfully work it out. But we are equipped now with the understanding of the symbolism of the 1,000 years. We, we now know that it's symbolic, not literal, right? We also then should know that this prison that's being spoken of is also symbolic. There's not a literal prison that Satan is being confined in right now. Rather, it's a symbolic way of saying that God is restraining Satan to a certain extent. There's a certain kind of restraint, um, a withholding, a holding back that God has upon Satan. He is being held back from accomplishing what he most desires to accomplish. What, what does Satan most desire to accomplish? Well, the scriptures, as you know, Satan comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Yes. And the, the primary way through which Satan comes to kill, steal and destroy is through deception. It's the mode by which he has acted. It's his modus operandi, the way he has operated from the very beginning. When he presents himself to Adam and Eve, he presents himself as being innocent, as a dove, but yet he is as cunning as a serpent. And his uh, primary objective when he presents himself to Adam and Eve is to still kill and to destroy. And by what means does he, what, what avenue does he take to accomplish his deed? Deception. Once again, Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation 9 both give the image of evil that is being held back or pushed back by holy angels of God. The time period of demonic forces being held back from the nations is the time that you and I are living right now. Right now, Satan and his demonic forces are being held back or restrained by God. Once again, from going out and deceiving the nations so that through deception, Satan can still kill and destroy. John is in Revelation 20. He's giving the same image from a different angle. He sees that Satan at this time, the end of the 1000 years, is released. And what does he do when he's released? He returns to his wicked deeds. He returns to the, the deception that he was restricted from. 
Our Lord says in John 8.44, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Jesus says, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John sees that just before the return of Christ, Satan is released from his restraint, his, his prison. And you will remember in Revelation 9, who has released him? Revelation 9.1, turn there if you would, 9.1. Then the fifth angel, Revelation 9.1, then the fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. He takes that key that was given to him and opens the bottomless pit. Listen to what comes out of the pit. Smoke comes out of the pit. You might remember this. Like a great furnace, like smoke from a great furnace. And what does it do? And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke comes locusts upon the earth. And the power and power was given to them as scorpions to hurt. Satan, John sees, is released. Who allows Satan to be released? Well, God does. It's a, a symbolic way of saying God gives him a key. It's a way of saying God releases him or gives him now authority. Not literal keys, but he gives him freedom to go forth and to deceive. When Satan is released, he fills the world with deception, which is symbolized by the smoke of fire. It's like smoke from a blazing furnace. What does smoke um, inhibit someone from doing? Well, breathing, yes, air, but seeing as well. John says the sun and the air are both affected or at least blocked from shining and from people breathing. What does that mean? Satan goes forth and he blinds men to Christ. There will be a time when in a comprehensive manner, John is trying to get this imagery of the entire world being filled with smoke, dark smoke, um, smoke that inhibits or prohibits, I should say prohibits, prohibits people from seeing and the air people from breathing. The, the smoke of not seeing the sun is Christ and the air of not breathing is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would no longer move upon men at that time to be saved. Men will not allow, be allowed to see Christ any longer during that time. Because the gospel has gone out to the four corners of the earth, the world, and all those who belong to Christ shall come in. And when all who belong to Christ come in, God allows Satan to be released. We're going to talk about what happens there. Satan will not work alone, but he will gather allies. They, these are the locusts. They're not demonic forces per se. They are human allies who are filled with demonic forces. It's not just demonic forces going alone. It's demonic forces filling human allies. 
kings and princes, um, from the lowly to the high, Satan will fill human agents to oppose Christ and his church. Revelation 20, verse 8, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. In Revelation 9, John uses the imagery of locusts emerging from the pit and they are coming from all throughout the world. John sees nations from four corners of the world. Again, that's the Jewish way of saying the entire world coming out to oppose and destroy the church. John uses two names to sum up the nations, who they are and where they come from. Now, if you're taking notes, if you got that part, everything I'm about to say is what I just said. John uses two names to sum up the nations, who they are, Gog, and where they come from, Magog. Now, if the 1,000 years is one of the most debated verses in the whole of the apocalypse of John, then the prophecy of Gog and Magog, however you want to say Magog, Magog, is the most understood and most misapplied. These two names, Gog and Magog, Magog, they might be new to your ears. I hope to God they are. Uh, if they are, praise God. If they're not, and you say, oh yes, I've heard of Gog and Magog, then may God grant you grace to understand what I've already said Gog and Magog are. There is perhaps no other passage in the entire apocalypse of John that has been examined with a heightened awareness as the prophecy of Gog and Magog. And the identity of these two names, it varies depending on what century you live in. Uh, no, let me say this. Its interpretation has varied depending on what century you live in. Let, let me give you an example. During the decline of the Roman Empire, uh, the faithful church father, Ambrose, insisted that Gog represented the Goths, who were the, um, the, 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 German, the nomad Germanics. They were the, the Germans before Germany became German. Uh, Ger Germany. He believed that they were the... the he believed that they were Gog and Magog, that the uh, the Goths were Gog and Magog. In the seventh century, Gog and Magog were viewed as the Muslims, the Muslim armies who were threatening Jerusalem. I'm giving you an example of how it's varied throughout the centuries. In the thirteenth century, Gog and Magog were um, viewed as the Mongols, the Mongol Khans led by Genghis Khan. In later times, Gog became identified, through interpretation, as being the Pope. And then the Turks. And then the Russian Tsar. I'm getting to a point that the last of these, the Russian Tsar, is especially trust, uh, noteworthy because during the Crimean War, which is the war between Britain and Russia during the 19th century, there was a, developed a a theory by a man named Schofield, or no, that would later be popularized by Schofield, if any of you have heard of the Schofield Bible, that eventually becomes spread throughout the entire world of dispensationalism, that Gog and Magog are Russia and China. 
um, you may have said, I, that's actually what I thought Gog and Magog were. Well, now you know the roots of, of Gog and Magog and why you think that. 100 years later, this, this theory of, of China and Russia becomes popularized. And even 1991, there was a man named Grant Jeffrey who wrote that Russia, the Gog and Magog, was led by a man named Mikhail Gorbachev. Any of you remember him? And that he would lead Russia along with Arab nations to invade Israel. He taught, this man, Grant Jeffrey, that this would trigger the rapture of the church. The dis- is what he said, the discovery of the Ark of the Covenant. He's going to find it before he in Indiana Jones. And the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And this was all supposed to happen by the year 2000. Well, it's 2023 and we're still here. This, of course, is false. But if you've been taught that Gog and Magog are something like Russia and China, you now know where all that came from. You also know this, that throughout the centuries, depending on what seems to be the worldwide threat, that's what people usually identify identify as being Gog and Magog. Unfortunately, it's not what John intended, but it is the false way in which it's been interpreted. John, what does he do? So how do we make sense of this? John is drawing from all of Scripture. So when John is using Gog and Magog, he's hoping that we, good Bible students, will be able to say, Oh yes, Gog and Magog is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 38, to be specific. We then must ask, how is Ezekiel using these two terms? Why? What's the context in which these two names are being used? Well, it originates from Ezekiel 38. And the prophet is foretelling of a great assault that will come upon God's people. Listen to this. After an age of blessing. Now, let me give you a quick run through through Ezekiel, okay? Ezekiel chapters 1 through 33 are dealing with God's judgment on wicked Jerusalem. That involves the fall to the city of Nebuchadnezzar, which is um, Babylon. In chapters 34 through 37, God promises revival of his people through the gospel of Christ. Now, here's where we get to the 38, but he says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. Ezekiel 36, 26. Then we get to chapter 38 and 39. And the prophet foretells of a great final assault on God's people before this symbolic, not literal, this symbolic temple in chapters 40 through 48. My wife and I recently, um, we're in we're in the book of Acts now, but we've been reading through the scriptures together. When we got to Ezekiel, I told my wife over and over again, I feel like I'm reading Revelation. I feel like I'm reading the book of Revelation. It's because Ezekiel is foretelling of the events of Revelation and John is calling back to the book of Ezekiel saying that which was spoken is now being fulfilled. In Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 2, the prophet says, son of man, or God says to the prophet, set your face toward Gog and the land, listen to that, of Magog, the person and then from which he comes, Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him, Gog. 
by using this same designation of Gog and Magog, John is saying, he's grabbing from Ezekiel, and John is saying, if, if this doesn't make sense, talk to me later, okay? John is saying, that battle that Ezekiel foretold of and anticipated is taking place in a grander way here in the very end. That's what John's doing. He's grabbing that which Ezekiel foretold of, and he's using it or applying it to the very end. Now, did it mean something for Ezekiel and his people then? Yes. It was for Assyria. And for the king of Assyria, who would overthrow Babylon. But John grabs that example and says, there's a greater evil coming that's even greater than Assyria. There will be a person and persons from all nations who unite and gather against the church. That's really the point. Who's Gog and Magog? It is all the wicked. Where are they coming from? Everywhere. The four corners of the world. If you were a Westerner living during the Cold War, you would have said, distant lands? Uh, that's got to be Russia. That's got to be China. Uh, if you were a Westerner and a dispensationalist, you would say, you, you would conclude, well, which nation has, um, has so many people that they are as, as numerous as the sand on the seashore? You would say, oh, it's, it's got to be China. Oh, there is only one army that could construct a, 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 an army that is as numerous as the sand on the seashore. It's got to be China. That's not what John is saying. Here's the other thing. Uh, Arshus Scroll brings this up. If, if, if John was speaking about Russia and China, that would have done no good to the seven churches who were hearing this for the first time. They would have gone. 2,000 years later, what does that have to do with me? Where, where, how am I comforted by that? Gog and Magog is meant to point out this. Evil, wicked, coming from all nations. It's used throughout the, the scriptures consistently as a reference not to one nation then, but to any people that is wicked and opposing the church. It becomes kind of a way of saying when someone goes, uh, yeah, he's, he's like another Hitler. We automatically know what that means. He's an evil man. He is dead set on destroying people. When the scriptures are using Gog and Magog, it's the same kind of idea. It's a, it's a Jewish way of saying wicked people coming to oppose God's people. When you want to go, well, who, who is Gog and Magog? I'll say it again. Wicked people coming from everywhere to oppose the church of Christ. Is that simple enough? In uh, Exodus, Gog is a person. Magog is his home. John is saying the wicked from all nations are coming to oppose Christ and his church. I, I, I want to make sure that that's it. I'm skipping a bunch of notes because I think looking at your faces, I want to make this as simple as possible. And I think that's as simple as I can make it. Gog is all wicked. Magog from all over the world to do what? To oppose Christ and his church. John sees that just like the innumerable locusts, those who gather to make war against Christ and his church are as uncountable as the sand on the seashore. How many reject Christ? 
in the end, too many to be counted. Should this cause fear? No. Because last week we learned that if your trust is in Christ, you should not fear. And also remember what the prophet Elisha said to his servant when he believed that the, that the wicked outnumbered them. Second Kings 6.16 Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. Do not be afraid, because there are more with us than with them. And also, First John, First John says, chapter four, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They gather for war and they, they gather, John says, on the broad plain. You, you might remember once again, Revelation chapter 16, the battle of Armageddon. Remember this? The battle of Megiddo, the, where, where um, we have had the false idea that there's going to be a great battle on this big particular field that... Um, cannot fit the countless number of people that scriptures say will be there? What is that? It's not a literal place. This great plane is actually a symbolism of a war against the church throughout the world. The great plane is the world. And who are they fighting against? The encampment or the holy city. Who is the encampment? Who is the holy city? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will make war, the wicked will make war against Christ and his church on the great plain that is throughout the world. Revelation chapter 7. When evil is released, God does not allow... Uh, here's our encouragement. When evil is released, and we go, well, there's going to be an innumerable amount of people opposing Christ and his church. Yes. What encouragement do you have? Well, if you're in Christ, don't fear. Here's the other thing. Satan is allowed to spiritually and deceive, spiritually harm, well, physically harm and spiritually deceive all those who do not have God's seal. He's allowed to spiritually harm. Oh, he can harm the church. He can physically harm us. He is allowed to deceive, I should say, those who do not have God's seal. So when evil is released, will you be hurt? You might be. Your body might be taken. But what does our Lord say? Do not fear him who can kill the body, but not your soul. If you are in Christ, that means you are sealed of God, which also means that when this smoke rises and when the gospel is no longer proclaimed, if you are in Christ, you won't be deceived. You will see Satan and his minions for who they are, and you won't be lost. Because you are sealed of God. Revelation 11, the two witnesses who represent the church, they are put to death. They actually die. The two witnesses are not um, Elijah and Moses. They represent the church. And they are actually put to death. But is that the end of their story? Well, no, because in Revelation 11... Not only are they put to death in front of the wicked, they are also raised to life in front of the wicked. And what is the, the, the result? The wicked stand in great awe and fear when the witnesses are raised up to heaven. Revelation chapter 16, when the wicked gather for war, just as they are about to persecute the church, scriptures say that Christ returns like a thief in the night. 
Christ comes and he opposes those who oppose his bride. If we're sitting, if we're sitting here and saying, well, is that the seven year tribulation? Stop. No. It's the great day of the Lord. It's the great day of the Lord's vengeance upon the wicked. It's not a seven years of you running and hiding in mountains and, and going to um, places where, where you where you cannot be persecuted. No, when the church is opposed, Christ will return. Revelation chapter 20. Just as the wicked surround the church, who is the camp of the saints, the beloved city of God, fire comes down from heaven and devours the wicked. In each moment that we are told of Satan's opposing the church that final last time. We are always told of Christ's victory and no soul lost to Satan. The 144,000 standing of the 140 uh, in Revelation 7 are the 144 standing with Christ in Revelation chapter 11, 12. None are lost. You won't be lost. You won't be lost. Our comfort is God will judge the wicked just as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as fire and brimstone came down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Christ, our champion, will return like a thief in the night. In a time that is unsuspected, that is unexpected. The righteous, hopeful, prepared, we are expecting his, his return. We are waiting for his return and, and we are under his care. We may die physically. It's possible. But we have a promise that we shall be raised to life with Christ who was raised and who lives forevermore. If Christ was raised, then you too will be raised. God has placed his seal upon you, upon us, and we will not be lost to deception. I love, we're reading through First John with our family right now. And it's perfect for our little ones who are sitting there at the table because John often refers to little children. He says, little children, or he says, you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them, those who deny Christ, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You won't be lost to those who deny the deity of Christ and the true humanity of Christ because you are of God, little children. And you won't be lost. You won't be lost to deception. Which also means you must know God's word. Know Christ. Know God. Know his Holy Spirit. So that when deception comes, and it will, you will be able to see it for what it is and turn away from it. If your hope is in Christ, don't fear. If you have trusted in Christ, you are guarded from the lies of the enemy. If you are in Christ, victory is already yours. He has and he will fight for you. Victory belongs to the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. He will say to you like he said to Israel, only stand there and see God fight for you, his people. Christ will not delay in his defense of you against Satan. When Satan is released, it will not take another 1,000 symbolic years for Christ to return. You won't be saying, okay, he's he's after me. Now what? Where are you, Lord? The great day of the Lord will take place in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye. When the church is surrounded, God will fight for his people. 
symbolic fire comes down from heaven and destroys all those who oppose Christ and his church. Satan's final release will be his final demise. I, I can't tell you how much I can't wait to get into the second point. So let's get into it now. Second point, Satan's final demise. This is verses 9 through 10. John doesn't see a close battle when Satan is released. He doesn't see a back and forth. It's not, a, it's not a, an old school 15 round fight where it's back and forth. It's an uh, old school Mike Tyson first round knockout. John sees an immediate victory of Christ in this church. Satan who deceives the multitudes is defeated without struggle. I, I'm going to get to a part that, that I can't wait to say. I'm holding myself back from saying it. He's thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Lake of fire is symbolic. Just like fire and brimstone are also symbolic. Satan will be cast into a type of suffering without end. Not a literal lake. Not a literal um, fire and brim brimstone is burning is burning rock that has a, a terrible sulfur, which is a um, disgusting smell, right? It's meant to communicate the type of horrific punishment that is reserved for Satan and his offspring. But most reserved for Satan. Satan will incur the greatest judgment. We talked about degrees of, of judgment. Satan will incur the greatest judgment. Satan is a spiritual being. He's not physical. Therefore, his suffering will not be physical, but it will be a spiritual suffering. He will undergo torment of his soul without end. I think we should all at this point start to get happy and rejoice. Yeah. Um, the suffering of unbelievers is physical pain that they will they will know in their resurrected bodies and suffering of their soul, which will be torment of the conscience without end for Satan. He will suffer to the greatest degree torment of the soul. He will never know peace. For those of you who are afflicted. For those of you who often feel like you are afflicted and have no peace, know that the one who afflicts your soul will suffer for an eternity without end, and he will know no peace. He will know no joy. Those of you who often feel like your joy in salvation is often robbed, the one who is attempting to rob you of that salvation will know no joy for eternity. Those of you who suffer sometimes loss or wrestling with hope and love, Know that the one who is afflicting your soul will know an eternity without love or hope in his existence. He will suffer the consequence of knowing he never achieved the glory with which he sought. He never got it. Uh, he never was able to ascend to the mount of God and sit upon the throne of God, which he so desperately lusted after. He will know for eternity and have no more chances to attain and reach for that glory which only belongs to God. He will suffer with the knowledge that he failed to rob Adam. Of the eternal rest that was laid up for him. That he failed to remove Eve from the loving grace of God. That he could not destroy the promised seed of the woman. Nor pollute the righteous line of Seth. Satan will weep in hell. And gnash his symbolic teeth when he thinks about how. He deceived the whole world, but he couldn't get Noah, the preacher of righteousness. 
Satan's soul will be vexed when he thinks about Abraham's faith in God and the friendship that God offered Abraham through covenant and how God blessed Abraham with the title the father of many nations. Satan will screech in pain when he considers the failure to supplant Jacob the way that Jacob supplanted others. He will rue the day when Jacob's name was turned to Israel and God's people were known as the Son of God. He will bang his head, as it were, against the wall when he thinks about how Joseph was used to save many. Judah was a lion's cub. Moses was God's prophet and typological deliverer of Egypt, of, of Israel. Satan will wallow in pain when he thinks about the camp of the saints that pressed on, that pressed on, that continued to press on to the promised land. When they, even when they were opposed by Satan on all sides, God was faithful to deliver them. Satan will be vexed in his soul. Satan will cry in anger when he thinks of how he could not ultimately seduce Samson along, but fell along with the Philistines in that old Colosseum. Satan will suffer when he remembers David, the man after God's own heart who slew the great giant and penned the words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But there will be no greater anguish, dear ones, no greater suffering, no greater dismay, as when Satan thinks of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Eternal One, the Wisdom of God, the Word of God, who assumed the flesh of man to, to redeem the flesh of man. He will cry out in pain when he remembers the Holy One of Israel that he could not kill at his birth, the one whom angels came to adore and worship, the, the one who grew in favor with God and men, the one who at 12 years old caused the teachers of his days to marvel at his questions and at his insights, the one who was identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one that uh, expelled the darkness and bound the strong man, plundering his home and setting captives free. Christ is the one who healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, who gave hearing to the deaf, life to the dead. He calmed the winds and quieted the seas. He fed thousands with five loaves and two fish. He cast out demons by the power of God and forgave sins because he is God. He rejected all of Satan's empty advances again and again. And when the soul of Christ was troubled, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done, O Lord. He took the sins of the world upon his shoulders he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He forgave sins from the cross and promised sinners that if they trusted in Him, they would be with Him in paradise. And praise be to God. Christ who died is Christ who was also raised. Just as Christ laid down His life, no one took it from Him. So Christ takes up His life again. He is risen. He has conquered Satan and death and sin. And Satan will suffer for an eternity knowing that he has lost and there will be no more opportunities for victory. He is defeated. Christ has sent his saints into the world to witness of the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Satan will know that as much as he tried to deceive, as much filth as was poured out into the world, it couldn't pollute you. It couldn't get you. It couldn't get you. You were secured in Christ. You are sealed in Christ. God has prevented him from taking you. And he will know that the promise that Christ made that if you hold fast that you will rule and reign with Christ forever is now true. And it will never be changed. Satan knows his time is short. He knows his time is short. Let me say to you, the day is later than it seems. 
The day is later than it seems. The angels will soon blow the trumpet and all the world will see the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The glory of God. Christ has already won. And Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone for eternity. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. I was preaching to myself when I wrote this. Remind you of yourself of this daily. The day is later than it seems. Be encouraged by this, by this. And here's what I've been wanting to say. From the time I started Revelation chapter 1, however long ago, to right now. Here's what I've been wanting to say this whole time, Tone. From this point forward, you will not see the name of the devil or Satan anymore in this book. We've got two more chapters to go. And you won't hear of his name ever again. At least in this book. I'll say it. He's been defeated. Not one more time. Go search. Yeah, some of you might be looking through it. You won't see it one more time. Not once. He's the final evil character that has been cast out of God's story. The beast fallen. False prophet fallen. Babylon the great harlot fallen. Now, the one who has orchestrated all of their deception fallen and thrown into the lake of fire. Or he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not one more time will you see his name in the rest of this book. Which means this, sister. In the new creation, he won't be there to accuse you. Which means this, brother. In the new creation, he won't be there to put guilt upon your soul. Not only will all of our sin be forgiven, but removed. And the accuser for all of the sins that we have been that we have committed, he will also be gone. We will rule and reign with Christ and the enemy of our soul no more. You won't even hear his whisper anymore. There will be no adversary, no enemy to fear, no enemy that hates us. The prophet saw a day, Isaiah. They shall not be hurt or destroyed in, the, in my holy mountain. Not hurt, not destroyed. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We who trust in Christ shall know eternal life absent of sin, absent of death, and absent of Satan. This means that if you have any crippling fear today, that there is an antidote to your crippling fear. If you fear persecution, if you fear opposition, there is a remedy for your fear. It's faith in Christ. We should never be tempted to, to forsake Christ or the afflictions that come with following Christ. When we know how this story ends, Christ is victorious, Satan is defeated. I've said this before, if you are standing with Christ, you're standing on the right side. If you are standing with Christ, you are standing on the right side. Don't abandon Christ, even if it comes with suffering or tribulation. Even when Satan offers you all of the pleasures of this world, if you are standing with Christ, you are standing on the right side. Abundant life is yours. An eternal life is yours in Christ. Let me say to you, 
In light of these things, hold fast Christ. Amen. The last enemy will be defeated, cast into hell, because Christ is victorious. And if you are in Christ, then you are also victorious. Amen. To God be the glory. Let us pray.